This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. To learn more about our leadership development and team building, visit iFlyVirginiaBeach.com. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Elevate Your Leadership with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. The point of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is to bring value to you, dear listeners, to bring things to you that you can take action on immediately. Leadership is a very personal brand. Leadership is something that you should develop based on what you're comfortable with and what you find to be effective. In my last episode, I talked about the art of leadership. And in the art of leadership, we have a definition. We build a foundation, and that foundation starts with a personal definition of leadership. And then we identify power styles and leadership types that we prefer, that we naturally adapt to. And at the end of the last episode, I teased everybody talking about my next guest, my guest who's queued up today, Navy SEAL Captain Retired Ryan Crowley. Ryan is going to talk to us today about what it's like to lead Navy SEALs. Ryan served for 26 years. He had a distinguished career. Ryan was assigned to Naval Special Warfare, also known as Navy SEALs. He has a proven and distinguished record of developing and leading high-performing teams while conducting our nation's most sensitive missions, cultivating relationships, and executing dynamic plans worldwide. Folks, this is the real deal. Ryan's key assignments included commanding officer of SEAL Team 4, commanding officer and plank owner, meaning he organized the unit or put the unit together. That's what plank owner means in Navy speak. So commanding officer and plank owner of the Special Operations Command Forward East Africa, commanding officer of Task Force 17 in Mosul, Iraq, commanding officer of Task Force 16 in Baghdad, Iraq, commanding officer of a tactical development mobility squadron assigned to Naval Special Warfare Development Group. Ryan has a proven record of success. He has supervised over 920 operations across Europe, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the Indian Ocean while overseas during 12 deployments. Folks, it doesn't get any more real than this. Ryan led more than 245 tactical operations at the squad, platoon, and troop levels. He was awarded the Legion of Merit, three Bronze Stars with Valor, five Defense Service Medals, and three Navy Meritorious Service Medals for leadership and decisive action in combat. Most impressive, to say the least, as a retired Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Special Operations 
operator myself, I can tell you that uh, this is an extremely impressive record of accomplishment that is not achieved by many people in the U.S. Navy. Charity and community involvement. Since Ryan retired, he founded the Warrior Sled Hockey Team. He founded the Warrior for Life Fund, which we're going to talk about. He founded the Virginia Beach Hockey Club, which we're going to talk about. And he's a member of the Hampton Roads Youth Hockey Association Board of Directors. Ryan currently works for an Alaskan Native Corporation and has the lead government contracting position and all the needles and syringes in support of Operation Warp Speed, encompassing over 1 billion products. There's more. I could go on. Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you for being here today. Bob, thanks for inviting me. It's a great honor. And, you know, when I look back at all those things you just described, it seems like a lot. But I can assure you, it goes by really fast. And I have a short memory on a lot of those things. So we'll see if I can remember a piece of them and, and be able to speak to it in a way that makes sense. Great. Well, what we're doing is bringing value to our listeners. And there's no doubt that, that you're going to bring tremendous value. In my last episode, I talked about the art of leadership and building a foundation and making sure that you have, that the listeners have, that I have a deliberate approach to leadership. Can you kind of talk about your approach to leadership, generally speaking? Absolutely. I'll start by saying that it, you know, changes over time, right? So my approach to leadership when I was a junior officer is certainly not the approach that I take when I'm a more senior and now even as a retiree, you know, it changes. And I think that's reflective of always trying to learn something new. And then also reflecting back on things that have happened in the past and learning from those, pausing and taking some time to rethink maybe some actions you've done in the past and what you would do in the future. So I have really settled into a pretty simple approach to leadership because it's uh, it can get confusing. And this simple approach, just I can do it every day and, every, and it applies everywhere and is a very humble approach, I believe. So first and foremost, I would say you have to know your trade. You have to know your craft and you have to know it well. There can be no question as to whether or not you, you're the expert in what you're doing. You have to have credibility. You have to continue to study that. You have to know it inside and out. You as an individual have to know your craft, but your teammates around you, the most important thing, it comes down to one word for me, and that is alignment. So I have to have a team that we're all aligned and we're all pulling in the right direction. And that doesn't mean that I want to be on top of everyone and make sure that they're going exactly the right direction. You want to give your subordinates and your mid-level leaders a little bit of room to come up with some of their own plans. But you know, once they're about 10 degrees off the direction that you're pointing, that's when you need to bring them back in and continue with that alignment so we're all pulling in the right direction. As soon as you see somebody pulling about 90 degrees off of you, that's when your leadership, you know, your project, your team, your mission is going to go sideways. So alignment is just absolutely the most important for, thing for me. I check those vectors almost daily and review them with my subordinates. And sometimes just in my head when I wake up in the morning and say, hey, are we all aligned in the right way? Are we doing the right thing? And then finally, my number three, and I just keep this in the back of my mind because people want to lead and they want it to be perfect and they want to lead by example all the time. What I've learned is leadership and success is imperfect. You're going to take two steps forward, two steps back, five steps forward. You're going to say some things that you didn't mean to say. You're going to do some things that you didn't mean to do. A good leader will pick all that up and continue to press forward. Some of these assignments take years to get over the the goal line. So you just have to continue to, to do that. Take a humble approach and remember, success is imperfect. You got to be professional. You got to know your trade in and out, and you got to maintain alignment. 
If you can do that, you'll be a successful leader. I don't care what business military organization you're in. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Holy cow. You mentioned rethinking leadership, you know, evaluating decisions you made. And did I do that right? Could I have done that better? That's a great point. Metacognition is what I call that in the Elevate Your Leadership series being metacognitive, thinking about thinking and coming up with ways to do things better, knowing your craft. That's incredible. Alignment. I love that. When I talk about leadership in my organization, I have 35 employees. We all want to be moving in the same direction and we have to have a plan. Like you said, we have to know what direction we are all supposed to move in. And that way, you know, if you're deviating from the course, And like you said, minor deviations are okay. You can actually have good discoveries with those minor deviations. But yeah, when people get too far off course, then you do have to course correct without a doubt. With that rock solid foundation, with that rock solid approach to leadership, referring back to all of your action in uniform, Mosul, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Bosnia, all war zones that are in the news every single day, Afghanistan. Is there a difference leading in a war zone uh, as opposed to something other than a war zone? That's a good question, Bob. Yes and no, you know, I think is, is the right answer, especially, you know, your first couple of rotations when you go over somewhere and you're in a war zone and, and you don't know what you don't know and you have, you've never been there. So it's completely foreign to you. So in that situation, absolutely it is different. The stress levels are high or higher and in every situation could be something thrown at you and you're just always, always on edge. What I will tell you is that as I look back after you're, you know, you're on your second and third rotation forward, some things have gone well, some things have gone bad. But what I've settled into is really the leadership is not different forward. You know, you're still going to have to make those moral and ethical decisions based on situation that's presented in front of you at the time. You're going to make the best decision you can and move on. And if you're making it based on those two things, morals and ethics, and you're applying your strategies to leadership, you're going to, you're going to make the right decision in all cases. So I'm going to say, no, I don't think it is really different in a combat zone than it is anywhere. Those things you bring back and you apply them to your life. I apply them to the current business model that I'm in now, and it serves you very well. I'll be honest with you. I think the business world right now is probably as much of a knife fight as you'll see over in a combat zone. At least in a combat zone, you know who you're supposed to be shooting at. I would say the more experience that you get, the more you realize you just apply your leadership. It can be a little bit more stressful. You know, you stick to those, you're going to be successful in inside a combat zone or out. I do have a couple of things that I was talking to you about the other day, kind of stress versus performance and how I measure that. Again, that applies to combat zones or not combat zones. And I look at that. That's how I evaluate units. It's how I evaluate people when I see in the way they're performing and maybe not performing. And I can assure you that in the special operations community, just like in any community, we have our really high performers and we have our really low performers. And it could be for a number of reasons. And I always keep an eye on that and make sure that I'm evaluating from that perspective. And it's the stress versus performance curve. So if you can imagine plotting out stress versus performance on a graph, the curve looks like upside down you, if you will. When I see somebody that's low stress, low performance as their leader or as their commanding officer, I'll just create a little stress for them and see where they go on the curve. If they can, if they move up the curve and their performance comes up a little bit, then I know that it's somebody that I can work with and I can manage. I can get them back onto that vector. 
if I create a little stress in their low performers and, and the line just stays straight and I do it over time, that means that I cannot get that person onto my vector curve for alignment that I talked about before. And if you can tell I'm an engineer, you know, everything is a vector and a math problem to me. But that's and how- Naval Academy graduate and you started engineering, I guess, right? Right. Okay, gotcha. Right. And so that's how I, that's how I measure low performers. But even more important than that, it's how I measure high performers because everyone, four-star generals to you know, E1s who just got in, everyone has this curve. Everyone has the low end of the curve and everyone has the high end of the curve. And the high end of the curve is high stress and high performance and extremely high stress and extremely high performance. And at some point, somebody's going to fall off that curve. So you have to look for that as well. And that's when bad things happen. That's when families fall apart. That's when people don't show up to work. That's when they start using alcohol. And worst case scenario, that's where you see suicide. And you see a lot of that in the DOD, believe it or not. You have to look for that low performer. You got to look for that extreme performer and make sure that they're not overperforming, you know, so high on that stress versus performance curve that, you know, they're going to fall off the other end. The sweet spot is to get them into the medium stress, you know, medium high performance. Uh And that's where you can sustain them long term. So those are the things that I look at. And again, I've had people come in and say, Ryan, how can you fire a Navy SEAL platoon commander that's been doing this for 10 years in four months or less as you guys are warming up to go into Iraq? And it's really easy for me. Stress versus performance. Can I get you on my alignment curve? And if I can't, then I'm going to have to bring somebody else in here so that we can be ready to go when we're overseas in a combat zone. Yeah. yeah, solid tools of leadership. What a great example. What a great method to use and listeners, stress versus performance, alignment curve. These are incredible tools. You know, there's a lot of discussion in this year of COVID about leading through crisis. And I've given several seminars on leading through crisis. And having looked closely at it, having led through this crisis myself, once again, with my company and my teammates, What I've seen is that the summary of leading through a crisis is it's kind of like you said, leadership, it's not different than leadership in forward areas or in hostile areas. You either have a solid leadership foundation that you apply across the board, or you have something other, something less than that. And what I've seen with this COVID crisis is the people who were solid leaders to begin with have weathered the storm for the most part. And the people who weren't solid leaders have been exposed and in a lot of cases are no longer in those leadership positions. So you have the foundation and you apply it in all situations or your time is going to be limited in that leadership role. I want to touch on one other thing. You talked about making decisions. We don't always have all the information we need, but we have to make a decision based on the information we have. The military, there's an intelligence process that gives commanders as much information as is available so they can make the most informed decision. But in business, and once again, especially in this COVID environment, leaders don't always have 100% of the information they need to make a decision. But if they hold up and they don't make a decision, you're holding up your team. Your team is ready to perform. Your team is ready to execute. And if you don't act decisively, the negative implications could be significant. Doesn't mean you always get it right. And that's what you alluded to as well, is you don't always get it right. But if you're acting out of moral and ethical character, which 
you mentioned, and your actions are legal, you can stand behind your decisions even when they're wrong. I think that's rock solid. How do you develop subordinates? How do you develop leaders? How did you do that throughout your career? How, how do you develop others? Great question. First, I'll tell you that I was really lucky and that I was surrounded by people that came in and took the time to work with me and and to develop me as a leader and really do what I say is the hard work. I kind of walk on tall shoulders that I've been fortunate to do that throughout my career. There is one really unique situation when I was working directly for General McChrystal, who I think is the best leader of our time. And I didn't know him personally. I knew him professionally. But the way that he would do business, he was connected every single day in an entire region with all the key leaders. And there are a couple of things that he taught me and he taught take his entire team. You know, he said, it's all about relationships and credibility gives you freedom of action. He would just tell us that over and over and over. And when I first heard it, I was like, it's a neat slogan, but it doesn't mean anything. But the way that he would develop you as a leader, he would, for instance, he would send me out, whether it would be on a Navy ship or whether it would be at a Ford operating base as an 04. And I was his liaison. And he made it very, very clear that Ryan spoke for him. So as his liaison, that meant that I had to speak to him on a daily basis. And you're talking to a guy that is pretty busy and has a number of mid-grade senior officers in his chain of command. But when I was forward in that position as a liaison, everyone on the ground there knew I was speaking directly to General McChrystal at the end of the day. So when I said something, I was basically saying what General McChrystal had already approved. And it cut right through all of the military bureaucracy and all those other details. That was the lesson I learned from him. That was probably the most important thing. One is it's all about relationships. Credibility will give you freedom of action and communicating directly with your subordinates on the ground that are in the fight, directly with them. Doesn't need to be translated through anybody else. I'm speaking right to those people. I still apply those things, those tactics and that was those lessons today. My current job with you know, Operation Warp Speed. I have a very diverse team. I have folks in London, in China, uh, in Chicago, here in Virginia Beach. I have a very diverse team and in Texas. And I tell them the same stuff that General McChrystal told me, and it works really, really well. And it allowed us to come together and, and you know, deliver a billion needles and syringes in a very short period of time. Exact same lesson. I really didn't change a thing. That is extremely powerful. So in this case, your leader, General McChrystal, empowered you to do your job. He didn't hold you up. He empowered you. He, he enabled you. He cleared a path to make sure you could be 100% effective or you could be highly effective. I think that is a, uh, that's a key aspect of leadership. When I discuss the art of leadership, I talked about my personal definition, which is enabling others. The more you can enable others to accomplish their objective, the better you are as a leader. That's pretty cool. You know, and I remember my leaders from my career. I remember the really good ones, and, but I also remember the really bad ones. And unfortunately, uh, I think we've all had those bad ones. And like I said, those bad ones don't last long. I also remember my coaches from youth sports. And I remember teachers, these are all kind of leaders early in our lives. And we remember the good ones once again, and we remember the not so good one. And for me, one of the things I've always applied in my personal development is when I saw something negative, when I saw a negative leadership trait, I recorded that or I noted that to make sure that I don't act like that, to make sure that I don't lead in that capacity. And unfortunately, gotten it wrong from time to time. And I've learned from some hard mistakes. I think that's important 
in developing good leadership. So to that end, how do you develop others? How do you bring people along and make good leaders out of those who work for you? I think the most important thing, you know, I like to have a little bit of a relationship with the people that I'm working with. I like for them to tell me a little bit about themselves so I can have a set point with them. So it's a little, they may know it or they may not know it, but it's a little bit of an interview. What motivates them? What can they work on? And I like to hear about how they want to lead their organization. You know, say it's a platoon commander or could be your business person that's working for you. But in, you know, in the military sense, come in, talk to them about what are your leadership uh, traits how are you going to apply it? How are you going to deal with tough situations? And let them explain it to me. And then when they go through that process, I think it registers that for them sometimes that they may not have a clean plan and uh, it's not me poking them in the nose. And then we'll sit back and think about it and then guide it a little bit from there. I also do like to show up, especially in the military leadership side and say, okay, Let's talk through this military operation that we're going to do tomorrow. And we'll get around a sandboard and start talking. And I'll say, okay, well, we now have a downed helicopter right here. One of your helicopters just crashed and went down right here. What are you going to do? Talk me through it. Talk me through your thought process. Talk me through how you're going to do it. It's interesting, the answers that you get back. And, and just where the level of risk is, how important the mission is, you know, is it a low risk mission? Is it a high risk mission? Is it a no fail mission? And frankly, I'll tell you, there's very few no fail missions that are out there. It's gauging a level of maturity and trying to figure out if they know how they're going to deal with a real contingency and where they're going to put their limited resources when those resources start getting taken away from them. So that's how I like to mentor them. And again, I'll go back to what I talked about initially. I do that from a position of experience, experience both tactically and operational. I can take those level of experiences and layer them on top of maybe a junior officer who's probably thinking a lot more tactical than he needs to be. So, and then just try and pull those out and get him to see if he can see the big picture here. What's the most important thing? And then I want them to start thinking that way. You know, one of the other, I think, good examples that I'll give is when we were in Baghdad and Mosul. And my job was really to do command and control. And we probably have four to five different maneuver elements, you know, moving in the course of the evening. And the way that we do business these days is we'll go strike one place, really a strike to develop do some interrogation, and then we'll flex. What a flex is means that, hey, we may have been four houses away. So we'll flex down to the next house and we'll do a quick interrogation there. And then we may see a guy starting to run down the road and we'll start tracking them. And the guys are on the ground and they are just simply eating. They are just going after it, right? And it's it's like the speed of war. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing more impressive than seeing a group of guys that can move that quickly through that type of environment and continue to flex and flex and just go after the target. But at some point, you have to call them on it. At some point, you know, when the sun's coming up and the AC-130 starts checking off and the, you know, the fuel levels on your on your aircraft that you have in holding are going down to where they're almost bingo, you got to talk to those guys on the ground, your platoon commander, and say, hey, we're out. Like, I need you guys to extract right now. They won't be happy about it because they've just stressed themselves. They've just put an incredible amount of risk on the line. And then now they have their commander telling them to get out of there and they'll come back and they'll do it. They'll get back out and they'll debrief with you and they will be irate. They're upset with you. Why are they upset with you? Because you as their commanding officer put them at great risk and then just pulled 
pulled the plug on it. So there's that dynamic there. But I also got to need them to understand that when that AC-130 checks off, now I can't come get you guys. And I know you guys are out there getting after it, but we have to have a balance. And that's where I need to bring them up so they understand the operational level. And then they can go, okay, sir, I now understand why why you're doing that. There's just a total balance in there. I think people think that in the military, it's just a, you know, you just make a decision and your your people follow. That's not today's military. You know, they are highly sophisticated, yeah. very smart people that you've got to lead them appropriately or they won't work for you. Yeah. So yeah. I know that was long-winded, but. Yeah, no, that's great. So, you know, going back to the downed helicopter scenario. So you ask a squadron commander, what are you going to do when one of your helicopters goes down in a non-permissive, also known as a hostile area? So I think what you're getting to there is is rehearsal and tabletop exercise. And through that, you develop leadership, having those discussions. Hey, when it's time for you to lead, what are you going to do? You know, doing those rehearsals and talking through those scenarios and military term tabletop exercise or TTX is is what we called it. Those are pretty critical. You also alluded to tactical, operational, and ultimately the strategic level of warfare. And we're going to take a pause for capitalism right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about those three levels of warfare briefly. And then we're going to transition into all this awesome stuff you're doing with the Warrior for Life Fund and hockey programming in our area. So we'll be right back, folks. We're going to take a pause for capitalism. More with U.S. Navy SEAL Captain Ryan Crowley in just a moment. And we are back. And as promised, I'm going to ask Ryan to discuss the three levels of warfare and how leadership applies. And I will tell you in my business, once again, I've discovered that these three levels of warfare, tactical, operational, and strategic, those are the three levels of business. If you're really running your business with this 360 degree awareness of what's going on in and around your organization. So without further ado, Ryan, can you talk about those three levels and leadership at those different levels? Sure, absolutely. And the way that, you know, kind of the way that they they apply, as you talked about in your uh, in your previous podcast and explain kind of the definition of what each one of them is, tactics being simply, you know, a tactical movement coming into the house, moving left, moving right, on the ground movements that happen, and then the operational level, you're talking multiple maneuver elements for, you know, for an objective that you're trying to reach that's, that's much broader than, uh, than any one individual action. And then at the, the, the strategic level, the overall military strategy, which you know, really supports the diplomatic strategy. And you talked about all of the, the weapons, if you will, of diplomatic strategy, uh, the dime the diplomatic information, military, economic strategy, and how you bring all those together. And then there's really one more, and that's the information, dime-I, if you will, um, the informational strategy, which is just important. And you can layer that informational strategy into any of those other previous ones in the dime. We would focus on the, you know, the military strategy and then the down-and-in tactics Oper, you know, operational level and so on and so forth. That's a really simple approach to it. I think it gets way more complex in execution, especially when we have a very, very small group of forces that are out there and the information, the way that it is today and the way that it flows, our tactical operators are really, they're tactical strategic because if, if we do a, a hit on a convoy, for instance, which is a tactical operation, and we missed our target, maybe there were some, some civilians that were killed as part of that action. That can become a strategic action 
that will cause U.S. forces, the military part of that dime to withdraw strategically. So it, you, know, you can go full spectrum really, really quickly with tactical, operational, and military or strategic. I'll give you another example and, and kind of an example of, once again, when leading junior people, sometimes they don't understand the purpose of a military action. Uh, sometimes the purpose of a military action is just really easy, straightforward, kill the enemy in front of you. Then you're going to land on the objective, kill the enemy and leave as quickly as you can and hopefully don't hurt any of your own people. You know, that's pretty simple. And I think what a lot of people think. Early in the war, we flew rotary wing helicopters into Baghdad, knowing full well that Saddam Hussein was not there. But we flew into a number of his compounds. And, and I'll, just to give you an idea of the size and scope of this thing, took about 31 fighter aircraft with refueling, multiple rotary wing aircraft to really project that far. Eight hour flight on a rotary wing, you got support all the way in, all the way out. We knew he wasn't at the objective. We knew he wasn't there. I mean, we had confirmed it, but that wasn't the purpose of the mission. The purpose of the mission was to demonstrate to the population in Baghdad that it was over. We were told we were not going to fly rotary wing in Baghdad ever. It was called the super miss missile engagement zone. It was impossible. It'll never happen. And that's what Saddam Hussein had told his people. Well, the next day in the middle of the night, they heard helicopters circling in Baghdad landing on his compound looking for him. And that is an example of the just very, very tactical level execution that had strategic impact. And sometimes it's hard for junior operators to understand that. They came back and they're like, we risked our lives. You know, we risked our lives to go into a fly that far and they're shooting at us all the way in and out. Yeah, they were. They couldn't connect the dots between we did that. Why did we do that? We did it so that the Iraqis would capitulate as early as possible so that the army units, the MEF that was coming up, that was fighting up through southern Iraq and making its way to Baghdad. By the time they got there, the people would capitulate because they had already seen it. So, uh, and that, that's an important piece when you talk operational and tactical and how it all applies, you know, up and down. So. I just use that as is probably the best example of a couple of good examples of how do you understand these different levels of warfare and how they can get complex. Yeah, no, great examples and how a tactical level action can have strategic impact. That's huge. And in business, it's no different. Our customer facing employees, they have to behave morally and ethically, appropriately, legally, obviously. So the tact in business, the tactical are your customer facing employees. Uh, a good action could have a huge impact on the strategy of the company and a bad action or a negative action could have a, a negative impact on the, on the corporate strategy. So everybody, you know, in the military, we say everybody's an ambassador of the United States. And in business, everybody who wears my jersey, everybody who's on my team, everybody in my company, they're a direct representative of me, kind of like you were a direct re representative of uh, General McChrystal. And it's important that they know that and that they impact those three different levels of business operations, strategic, operational, and tactical. All right, great discussion, man. We could talk about that alone for about an hour, but I want to transition into hockey because you and I became good friends, I think, largely through hockey. And you're doing incredible things for kids in our area, for military members in our area, and so just start wherever you want to start, you know, Warrior for Life Fund, Virginia Beach Hockey Club, Sled Hockey. Talk about hockey and military and what you're doing. Great. And something that 
definitely very passionate about. For anybody who actually plays the game of hockey, they know what we're talking about uh, because it's a little bit of a cult. When guys step out onto the ice, or, or ladies, young and old, when you step out onto the ice, it has a way of just clearing your mind because there's so many things going on. You're trying to skate. You know, you can spend a lifetime trying to learn how to skate. You have a stick in your hand. You know, you have some tactics that you're trying to, you're trying to play the tactics of the game. There's a goal. You're trying to score a goal. At the same time, you have these rigid boards that will stop you immediately if you run into them. And then you have other players that are trying to knock you on your can the whole time. When you, when you wrap those, all those things together, no matter what problem you stepped on the ice with that's in your head, personal, professional, you name it. When you step onto the ice, you don't think of anything else but ice hockey and staying alive while you're out there. So it has that just incredible effect of therapy is, is pretty amazing. The camaraderie is, is also just like I've never seen before. It, it reminds me of being in a military unit where guys are working hard to be, to be their best athlete, give their best effort, whatever that is. At the same time, you know, everyone's always cutting up with each other and laugh and uh, poking fun at each other. So from that perspective, those who play the game understand that. And it's a life sport. You can play it from the time you're two to the time you're you know, 99. And we've seen it. So th that's what's always attracted me to the game. I didn't start playing until I was 35 years old. you know, And then from there, I became an addict and wouldn't stop playing. But one of the reasons that I started to play, I think more than anything, you know, had to do with looking for an outlet to clear my mind. You know, some things that, you know, I'd been struggling with, went through a divorce, my ex-wife had some medical problems and it just snowballed into a really tough situation for me. Go back to that stress versus performance curve that I described earlier. I was at the very top end of that curve and I recognized it. And I, and I knew when I went to go play that it brought my stress levels down significantly. So I took that and turned it into, if that's good for me, it's probably good for a whole host of other folks. So we created an environment, created a program where it didn't matter what level you played at. The, the important thing was that you came out and played. And we did it. And we brought family members out there. One of the family members, uh, one of my players said, hey, would you mind if I bring my son out? He's a quadriplegic. And I just thought about it for a minute. I said, no, no problem. Bring him out. Let's see what happens. Took him out, pushed him around on the uh, on the sled or in his wheelchair, not even on a sled yet. And the coolest thing, Bob, in the world, this kid had never played a sport in his entire life. And somebody pushes the puck out in front of him and I'm pushing him from behind. He's got one arm that he can manipulate the stick with. And that puck went out in front of him and you could see him come alive. I mean, literally in his chair in the rush of the game just like I would, just like you would. And when I saw that, I knew I was on to something. I'm like, wow, this was the first time that this young man had ever felt the rush of the game from inside the game. And it could be any game. In hockey, it, he, could, he was right there and he took a swing at it. He missed the goal, but man, he was happy as I've ever, I've seen him. And that was really neat. And from there, I scratched my head and I said, hey, I think there's this sled hockey thing out there. A couple of weeks later, USA Hockey gave me a grant, gave me my first five sleds, and then we've taken off from there. I've had people in the program that started from not ever playing a sport in their life and ended up on the U.S. national team. Almost made it to, to uh, the Olympics if it had been in an offseason, the Paralympics, right there from our program that we started. From there, we're just looking to expand and have more programs and support the military and give recognition to what's gone on in this community here in Virginia Beach over the last uh, 20 years with the Gold Star kids, with the military families, 
with the veterans that are struggling, with families, with folks that were born with spinal bifida and uh, never played a sport in their life. It's, it's interesting when you wrap it all together, it makes for a great community. It does really good stuff to connect people and keep people above ground. I think that's incredible. Uh, you talk about the relief you get being on the ice and how you're applying kind of some of the skills you learn in the military, you're applying that on the ice. So you talked about in the war zone, flexing to the next target, you know, on the ice, we're flexing to the pass, we're flexing to the goal, you know, we're, we're constantly flexing. 99% of the time when you're on the ice, you do not have the puck, but you're being strategic in your tactical movements, if you will, you know, we're moving to the open ice or we're blocking somebody out. So very, very uh, comparable to to some of the mission stuff we've done. You talked about the Paralympic sport as well. And, you know, I think it's noteworthy that sled hockey is the largest and most popular Paralympic sport and very robust community, strong support from the NHL and uh, just an incredible thing that you've developed. You know, I've seen the development over the years to the point of having a travel tournament, I think last weekend or the weekend before. So a sled team from a different area came to Virginia Beach. That's incredible. So regarding the Warrior for Life Fund, which is kind of the vehicle with which you you apply hockey to better people's lives, you know, especially service members, military members, where are you taking the Warrior for Life Fund? What's your vision ultimately to have the greatest impact? My goal with that, we started it about seven or eight years ago, and it continues to grow, continues to grow. But my goal is to professionalize so that we can serve more people. There's a great demand out there. I see it every day inside the community, men and women that can be out there as part of this community, helping each other, therapeutic approach to sports, whether it's a disability that you were born with, you're playing stand-up straight hockey, some of the memorial games that we have, or even you know some of the guys that have what I call learned disabilities. So a guy that maybe lost his leg, or a guy that uh, has some back problems and can't stand and play. But you put them all together on the ice and you really see some changed lives and some lives that are probably saved. Uh, In fact, I've been told that a number of times. It is meaningful. It's the thing that I will, when I look back on my life, I won't remember those things that you read at the beginning. I'll, I'll remember these people in this community that I think were served by this, uh, by this organization. Where we're trying to take the Warrior for Life now is to expand it so that we have some people that run the programs as a professional. Right now, I have all volunteers that do it, and it's hard to get volunteers to work as many hours as we're needing to work at this point. So we'd like to have a a expand to a, a larger facility, a place where we can have a team room, better locker rooms, and then really have the theme of the facility to honor the history and heritage of the military and what's gone on here in the Virginia Beach area. And what am I talking about there? You know, I know a lot of the, you know, the general population knows about the SEAL community and and what's going on. But when you see it and you, you live it every day, you realize that there's some real holes and gaps that need to be filled. The Operation Red Wing, for example, you know, we lost 15 or more guys on those flights. One incident happened one time. Uh, the extortion flight that we lost, 17 guys. But if you multiply that by their family members, by their friends, their close friends, their neighbors here in the Virginia Beach area, I want to pay tribute to those guys. I want, uh, when you walk into the Warrior for Life Center, you know, I want you to see 
the history and heritage of this community and the pain that was felt here and the sacrifice that was given here and the pride that we have here for what all these guys have done from the guys to their families, to their close friends. And I want others to walk in no matter what their situation is and to realize that this is a community of sacrifice. This is a community that's going to band together and stick together and remember what happened in the past. And then, um, you know, kind of drive forward and solve our problems as a community. That's really what the Warrior for Life Center is about, that we're trying to build and incorporating that hockey theme into it with all of those other things that we described. And I think we're close to doing it. Uh, there's some potential that we could we could move to have one on the East Coast and have one on the West Coast. So stay tuned. We'll see where that's going to go. But uh, any support we could get from anyone who's interested in what I'm describing would be great. Uh, we're a 501c3 public charity co-branded with the Navy SEAL Foundation. And I think we're doing some really great stuff to help some people that really can use the help. For potential donors out there, Warrior for Life Fund, you can Google it. There's also a video on the landing page that talks about the programming that Ryan just laid out for us. I've been close to the organization and part of the organization for a number of years. And everything Ryan said, he kind of said with modesty, but it is incredible the things that are happening. I've seen families, I've seen children whose fathers, for, for the most part, are either deployed or unfortunately deceased. You get these kids on the ice. We, first, we get these kids to the ice. We get them to the rink. If they have brothers and sisters and competing interests, it's difficult sometimes for, for mom or, or dad to get the kids to all the different venues. You know, if dad's on deployment, maybe a son or a daughter won't play hockey that season. And the Warrior for Life Fund is there to not let that happen. The Warrior for Life Fund is there to make sure these kids get on ice. And they're around men that uh, can positively impact them. Just so powerful, so powerful in so many ways. And like I said, uh, for me to be a part of the organization and see what's going on, it's incredible. The way you talk about the rink and the ice center, um, I went to a USA Hockey Level 5 coaches symposium in Lake Placid, New York. And so they have the Herb Brooks ice rink, you know, Herb Brooks, the the coach of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team that won the gold medal that year. So the Herb Brooks rink, and then they named locker rooms and different parts of the facility after different players on that team. And I believe that's part of your vision to honor those who have passed. Uh, we also have great support from the NHL. Again, quiet professionals. They help us publicly and privately. And you've cultivated all of those relationships, which is incredible. So before we check off, Ryan, I just want to ask you if there's anything, what we say in EOD, any cleanup shots? Is there anything that uh, we didn't get to that you would like to discuss? No, I, I would like to, you know, just thank all the people in the Warrior for Life that do, that really do the work. And I get to talk about it a lot, but there are some people just down and in that do an incredible amount of work uh, up in the Boston area as well. Frank Simonetti, Tony Cabana up there that just they do some heavy lifting and then I'll even say I'm going to I'm going to shout out to Kevin Miller who's got to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met active player up in uh, up in Boston he sends us his gear his extra gear every year it's, it's quite a bit of gear from his uh from his contract with warrior hockey that he has I've outfitted probably 20 operators and family members down here with brand new gear that Kevin Miller sends down He's just a wonderful human being, and I, I probably wouldn't mess with him out on the ice either because <laughs> I mean, he is. I, I saw him. I saw him in a fight the other day, and it was it was pretty devastating. 
but uh, deep inside, he's got to be one of the most humble men that I've ever met. Thanks for the the opportunity, Bob. This is great. And uh, I'm clear. No, uh, no cleanup shots for me. Thanks, though. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks, Ryan. What a great discussion. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com. Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com and connect with him on LinkedIn.